Well, will you pray with me, please? God, we are grateful this morning for your presence with us through your spirit. Thanks for your word that is living and active, that you reveal more of who you are and how we are to live through your word. Thanks for your son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Guide us as we turn our attention to your word this morning. May you be honored and glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in the year of our Lord, 2006, a modern musical masterpiece was released into unsuspecting homes across the country and around the world. What started as an idea to simply fill the gotta sing, gotta dance block of programming on Disney Channel quickly became an international sensation with over 225 million viewers. Not one, but two sequels and multiple spinoffs. I am, of course, talking about High School Musical. If you're not familiar with this movie franchise, well, I don't know how to say this kindly. Shame on you. <laughs> the plot has been described as a modern adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Might be a little bit of a stretch. It stars both Zac Efron and Vanessa Hudgens in their breakout performances. While I could probably and relatively easily preach an entire sermon series on the three movies in the High School Musical franchise, let me very quickly summarize the plot of the very first movie. Stick with me. Troy Bolton and Gabriela Montez first meet at New Year's Eve party at a ski lodge. They bond over karaoke, even though Troy is a star basketball player and Gabriella is an academic savant. They reconnect at school a week or so later when Troy discovers that this mystery girl that he met on New Year's Eve has transferred into his high school. While they run in different social circles, jocks and the Scholastic Decathlete Chemistry Club, their shared love for music and singing brings them together to try out for the school musical. This, of course, upsets the fragile social hierarchy that exists in every North American high school. Hijinks ensue as all the different social cliques work together to try to maintain stability. In the end, Troy and Gabriella both compete in their respective competitions, the basketball championship game and the scholastic decathlete. And they still make it to their callback session uh, and audition to secure the lead roles in the musical. The closing scene in this musical movie is the entire student body coming together after realizing that their unique talents, strengths, and differences are what make them strong. The final scene in this entire, is the entire student body singing, dancing, and celebrating with the song, We're All In This Together. Those of you who've seen it, now have that stuck in your head. I do not apologize. What a ride, what a film, what a time to be alive. <laughs> if you have not seen this movie, do yourself a favor, watch it and both sequels over the Thanksgiving holiday. If you have seen it, do yourself a favor, watch it and the sequels over the Thanksgiving holiday again. What does High School Musical have to do with us and with the value that we're looking at this morning? It's not a shock to any of us here this morning that we're living in one of the most socially and relationally polarized times in the history of our country. 
no matter what the issue may be. In North America, we have boiled down our communication about important issues to hot takes dispensed in however many characters are allowed on Twitter. And instead of sitting down with people, looking them in the eye and, and attentively engaging in conversation and building relationships, we dismiss people based on associations, whether those associations are real or just assumed. In a world and in a society and a culture that is increasingly fragmented, hostile, and divided, our church has this as a stated value, the incorporation of the unique giftedness of individuals. To help us understand what this means and how this might look, let's turn to our scripture passages for this morning. First, our Old Testament passage comes from Exodus. Moses has already hesitantly accepted God's call to lead the Israelite people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. This collective mass of people, well over a million strong, has safely fled Egypt. They've escaped the pursuing Egyptian army across dry land in the middle of the Red Sea, and they are now wandering around in the wilderness as fully free people for the first time in over 400 years. The passage picks up the story as Moses' wife and children are brought to him by his father-in-law, Jethro. It's interesting to note that we don't exactly know when Moses' wife and children left him. They were with him when he left Midian to return to Egypt. And we know they started the journey with him because of the story of God visiting them as they traveled back and Moses' wife circumcising their son to save the life of his husband. That's in Exodus 4. However, they aren't mentioned at all during the time Moses is in Egypt. Through all the plagues or the, the escape, his wife and children are not mentioned. They return to the story now once some of the dust has settled. I wonder if this was an indication that Moses doubted the success of the task at hand. I wonder what caused his wife to return to Midian with their children. Was it her idea? Was it Moses's? I don't know. Just interesting to think about. Whatever the reason, Jethro and Zipporah, Moses's wife and their children, come to Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness. Moses catches them up on all that God has done, all that has transpired. And Jethro's response is to worship and sacrifice to God in gratitude and praise for all that God has done for them. The next day, Jethro observes Moses spending his time uh, and himself on behalf of the Israelite people serving as a judge and a mediator for the whole nation. Jethro's shocked at what he sees. And like a good in-law, inserts himself into the mess and starts dispensing advice. However, his advice is timely and well-received, and Moses takes it to heart. Jethro basically tells Moses, you're doing too much. There are other people that can help him carry the load of leading this mass of humanity. He tells him, Moses, you'll be more successful and the people will be more secure if you will trust others, if you'll st strategically delegate the work and, and focus on the strengths that God has uniquely given you as a leader. Three things to notice from this story. First, rugged individualism, it's not just a modern Western concept. Yes, we may have perfected it or sensationalized it with our John Wayne movie tropes and American exceptionalism. But individualism is blatantly seen in Moses. Now, this is somewhat surprising when you compare the Moses of Exodus 18 
to the Moses of Exodus 4. Do you remember how Moses initially responded to God's calls? He spoke to him from the bush that was burning and not consumed. Moses threw every excuse in the book back at God. God, I can't speak well. I'm an outcast. I don't know what to do. I'm scared. All these things. Yet God provided all he needed to to speak to Pharaoh and to lead the people out of Egypt. And now just a few chapters in the story and a few months later, listen to Moses's response to Jethro when Jethro asked him what he is doing. Starting in verse 14, when his father-in-law saw the, all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is it you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone as judge? Why all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me. I decide between the parties. I inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses is quickly transformed from doubting God's call to taking everything on himself and bearing the full load of responsibility. Second observation, life in general, whether you're a really high-powered leader or whether you don't think you're leading at all, you are a leader and you're living life and you're doing hard things, but that doesn't have to be lonely or isolating. It's true that no one could fully know or understand the weight that Moses carried. Just like no one can fully or truly know the weight and the burden that you and I carry on a daily basis. But as Jethro very directly communicates to Moses, he, along with you and I, don't have to do everything on our own. Third observation. When given the opportunity, people will, more often than not, rise to the occasion to meet and even exceed expectations. As Moses delegated, later in the story, we see he delegates out and the people rise to meet those expectations. And Moses is freed uh, to press into who he was as the leader. How does this ancient story about Moses and his father-in-law and these three observation, observations give us insight or inform the stated value for our church? To try and answer that question, look at our New Testament passage for this morning. After the Apostle Paul planted the first church in the Greek city of Corinth, he remained with the church for approximately a year and a half. He taught them about Jesus, and he modeled for this new congregation how to live a life full of grace and holiness. Of course, Paul moved on in his missionary journey, and after a while, this fledgling church began to quarrel and fall apart. This first letter back to the church was Paul's initial attempt to help pastor and lead this young church from afar. The bulk of the letter gives very specific instructions and responses to things Paul had heard about regarding the church while he was away. But as he nears the completion of the letter, Paul begins writing about different gifts that people have who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Gifts like preaching and teaching, leading, discernment, prophecy, and wisdom. In our passage for this morning, Paul tells the Corinthian church, and us, that we are the physical representation of the body of Christ on earth while we wait for him to return. And as we know, simply from living our human bodied experience, our bodies are composed of thousands of different pieces and parts that when they are doing what they were created to do, make the human body one of the most complex and beautiful organisms that exists. 
Think for a second about someone who is the very best at what they do. Maybe think about Steph Curry shooting a basketball or Tiger Woods when he was in his prime hitting a golf ball. Maybe it's Taylor Swift writing and singing songs about breakups or Wendell Berry writing poems about agriculture and farming. Maybe it's Banksy painting illegal graffiti. These are all just a, a few examples of people doing who are the very best at what they do. We are amazed and inspired when we see people harness all their talents and their abilities to do something exceptional. It's beautiful. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, there's an inherent uniqueness and diversity within a church. This is an obvious statement to make as we recognize the vast diversity and uniqueness within the, hum within the human body. Like a body is made up of hands and feet, eyes, skin, heart, lungs, toes, fingers, joints, and internal organs, all working together to make the human body function and beautiful, the church is made up of a diverse population of people, each with a unique set of gifts, skills, and abilities, which when it works together, makes the body of Christ function efficiently, effectively, and beautifully. For example, did you know or even maybe realize that in our specific congregation, there are people who are teachers, professors, doctors, both PhD and MD, engineers, lawyers, authors, CEOs, athletes, educators, food service providers, nurses, maintenance professionals, caterers, nonprofit leaders, graphic designers, building contractors, home builders, stay-at-home parents, librarians, poets, students, artists, secretaries, theologians, mental health therapists, coaches, business managers, ranchers, farmers. That list doesn't include all our other hobbies or skills that we have and utilize outside of our vocations or our jobs. One of the problems that's endemic in humanity is our desire or our need to compare ourselves to others. How do we match up? Who's better than I am? Who am I better than? Who do I want to be like? The problem with doing this is that we either elevate ourselves or others to a place of prominence that's out of balance with what makes the group function most effectively and efficiently and is really out of step with who God has created us as individuals. In order for our specific church to be the very best version of itself, each of us individually must accept, own, and live out of our specific gifts and abilities. The late pastor, author, and theologian Eugene Peterson translates this section of scripture in his, uh, his work, The Message. He says, you are Christ's body. That's who you are. You must never forget this. And then the key part here, he says, only as you accept your part of that body does your part mean anything. Only as you accept your part of that body does that part mean anything. So instead of being consumed with or overwhelmed by our insecurities or our pride, we must embrace and be thankful for who God has uniquely made us as individuals. As we do so, we'll become that much more valuable to each other and to the kingdom of God. As a body made up of, as a body is made up of many different parts, we are interconnected and dependent on each other. A hand is useless if it's not attached to an arm. 
which is attached to a torso, which is attached to a neck, which is attached to a head, which holds a brain, which sends a signal to the hand to do what a hand is created to do. One of my favorite parts about this passage is the way that Paul organizes his thoughts in this letter. He doesn't just stop with addressing individual, individual uniqueness and gifting. Instead, he continues by saying, let me show you a more excellent way. And as you're probably familiar, 1 Corinthians 13 is Paul's famous chapter on love. What love is, what love isn't. The connection between chapter 12 and chapter 13 is essential. Our individuality, our gifts, our passions, our abilities and talents only make sense when they are motivated and charged with love. Or as Paul puts it, if I give away all I have, if I deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I've gained nothing. We have each been brought together in the specific time and in the specific season, in the specific body for a reason and a purpose. The combination of all of our gifts and abilities when fueled with love for each other and for our community and for Christ can and will make a practical and eternal difference. And as we grow in love for each other and our community and for Christ Jesus, and as we more fully embrace and live out the gifts that God has uniquely given to us, we will naturally fight against the individualism and isolation that we saw was apparent in Moses and ourselves. And we'll begin to see God work through us in extraordinary ways. A couple of minutes ago, I listed off a bunch of different jobs and vocations that I'm aware of that exist within our church body. And I'm sure I missed a lot of people. Only you know what you're truly gifted at. Only you know what you're truly passionate about. So what are you going to do with that knowledge? I opened the sermon talking about High School Musical. I'm going to end this sermon talking about High School Musical. I haven't been able to stop thinking about the closing song, We're All in This Together. As cheesy or as Disney-fied as that song may be, it's our reality. We are in this. The messiness, the beauty, the mundane of life together. We need each other. We need to celebrate each other in the variety of gifts and experiences and backgrounds and talents and perspectives that each of us brings to this place, to this specific body. High School Musical was the hit that it was because it shone a light on all the different cliques and stereotypes that exist in an American high school. And while it may be oversimplified, it is possible for the diversity and uniqueness of the human experience to come together and to create something beautiful. That movie makes you feel good. I believe to the very core of me that nowhere is the unity of people more possible than in us, Christ Church. United in the love of Christ and in the power of the Spirit, together, may we recognize and celebrate each other's giftedness. And then may we seek to work together to love one another in the community into which God has placed us at this specific time and at this specific season. No matter what your vocation is, what your gifts might be, or your talents are, you have a place here. Your gifts are needed here. Moses wasn't able to lead the Israelites on his own. This church cannot function on just the leadership and gifts of the staff and elders. 
We need you. We need each other. Will you share your talents and abilities? Because we're all in this together. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.